Hi, this is Walter Koenig, and you're listening to TV Confidential. Ed Robertson welcoming you to TV Confidential. Radio talk show about television. Chuck Harder will join us in our second hour as we play part two of our conversation with Robert Hooks. Robert Hooks, founder of three of the most significant African-American theater companies in the United States and the first African-American actor to have a starring role on a network TV drama, which Robert did when he played police detective Jeff Ward in the groundbreaking 1967 police drama NY. We will talk to Robert about some of his other film and television roles this week, including Star Trek III, The Search for Spock, and the 1972 blaxploitation motion picture, Trouble Man. We'll play part two of our conversation with Robert Hooks in our second hour. We hope you'll stay tuned for that. In the meantime, and speaking of Star Trek, we will lead off this hour by playing part two of a conversation that began last week with our friend Mark Cushman, Mark's latest book, These Are the Voyages, Gene Roddenberry and Star Trek in the 1970s, Volume 1, 1970-1975. First of a two-volume set chronicling the period in Star Trek history, spanning the cancellation of the original series and continuing through the making and the release of Star Trek, the motion picture, in 1979, a 10-year period in which Roddenberry experienced a lot of personal and professional ups and downs, both in film and and in television, while Star Trek itself became a worldwide phenomenon. These are the voyages Gene Rodberry and Star Trek in the 1970s, Volume 1, 1970-1975, available through our friends at jacobsbrownmediagroup.com. You can also find it at amazon.com and wherever books are sold online. you recall that in Part 1 of our conversation with Mark, which aired on last week's program. We talked about some of the many battles that Gene Roddenberry fought with TV executives in the late 1960s and his early foray into motion pictures in the 1970s. As we pick up the conversation, a little earlier we alluded to Quester Tapes. Quester Tapes was one of one, two, three, four pilots that Roddenberry produced in the early 1970s, although I say four pilots. Three of them were actually variations of the same concept. That's right. But we'll get to that in just a second. But Quester tapes, I know that uh, Robert Foxworth and uh, Mike Farrell co-starred in this. I was not aware that uh, Robert Foxworth was not the original choice to play Quester. Leonard Nimoy was. Yeah. And, you know, it's amazing that Leonard was willing to do it. But he, uh, because you could say, well, you're going to be playing Spock again. But he saw the difference. He saw that Quester had a lot more humor in him. Unlike Spock, Quester is trying to mimic human beings. So he's making jokes, not successfully, mm-hmm. but he's trying to make jokes. He's trying uh, to make love to a woman. He's trying to do all these things that Spock would never have done because he needs to appear to be human and fit in with human society. So even though he's an android, he's very mechanical in some ways, He's not like Spock at all. An actor like Nimoy can see the difference. We might not. We may say, well, that's kind of like playing Spock again. He saw a profound difference in this, and so did Roddenberry. So Roddenberry came in and wrote Quester tapes for Leonard Nimoy. Nimoy was under contract with Universal after he left Mission Impossible. They signed him to be an actor, director, writer. And he was under contract with them for two years. 
but they only gave him one directing job, which was an episode of Night Gallery. They put him in a Columbo. They put him in a TV pilot called Baffled and, and one other thing. So they weren't really utilizing him. The projects that they promised him weren't coming about. And one of the projects was Quester Tapes. So his contract runs out, and he says, I'll do Quester Tapes. That's been written for me by Gene, and I love it. I'll do that, but I'm not going to give you an exclusive contract. I want to be able to do other work outside of the studio. Uh, and so Universal decided to take him out of Quester Tapes and put in Robert Foxworth, who had just signed a contract, and they had a long-term contract on him. Well, Gene protested. Universal said, nope, it's done, and don't you tell him, we're going to tell him he's under contract to us, not you. Well, Leonard's on the lot, and he runs into the director, who's going to be doing Quester Tapes, and the director says, it's a shame you're not going to be in this. And that was the first time Leonard heard about it. Yeah. And he said, what? And so he calls Gene Roddenberry, and he says, uh, wish you luck on the pilot with uh, Robert Foxworth. I understand he's taking the part. Good luck, and thanks a lot for telling me. And Gene said, and I got this right from Leonard Nimoy. Gene said to him, I, isn't it terrible? I know I'm, I'm really upset about this. I'm fighting with the studio over it. And Leonard didn't believe him. And he said, yeah, sure you are, Gene. Thanks, thanks for telling me. And that ended the conversation. And Leonard carried that hurt to his death. Because as we just discussed, Leonard was very loyal. Look how he stuck up for the other cast mm -hmm. members. And he felt betrayed by Gene Roddenberry. So throughout all the time they were doing the movies, there was a very uneasy relationship with them. And I wish I could have called Leonard. He passed away about six months when I found this out, going through all of Gene's papers. Gene Roddenberry was fighting the studio, and he even quit Quester Tapes because they had taken Leonard Nimoy out. He wrote a letter to the studio heads, and he said, if, if you take him out, I'm, I don't want to do this. So it's either going to be me or, or him, either Foxworth or me. But if you take Leonard out, I'm, I'm not going to do this. And to the, my amazement, the president of Universal writes back to him, and the memo's right there in the book, and he writes back and he says, okay, let me see if I have this clear. If uh, we're going to take Leonard Nimoy out and put in Foxworth, you're going to quit? Okay, go ahead and quit. We'll pay you what we're going to pay you. You can be a consultant. You won't be executive producer, and so on. And I am just shocked <laughs> that they let Gene Roddenberry go to keep an actor who hadn't proven himself. Now, he did a great job, but nobody knew he was going to do a great job. Uh, so it just shows the way Gene Roddenberry was being treated by these networks and studios during this period. This is a cliche, but it's true. The more things change, the more things stay the same. We've had many conversations about how the decisions that are often made by executives on a network level, to borrow the title from one of Leonard's project, baffle the imagination. They do. And Gene was treated this way all the through. Here's another thing I found really interesting through all the research I did and I brought into the book for everybody else to experience is that I was around watching these shows. You know, I was, a, I was a teenager watching these things. I was a younger kid when Star Trek was on, but I was watching it in prime time on NBC. I was 9 and 10 and 11 when it was on there. So I was watching these uh, pilots when I was uh, 15, 16, 17, uh, throughout those three or four years that those were being done. And I felt the same way the critics did. And you see some of those original reviews in the books when these pilots air, the critics are kind of mixed, and they say, well, this is interesting, but it feels a lot like Star Trek. It seems like Gene is recycling his ideas. He's running out of ideas. And then you see the memos in there from the studio heads and the network saying, make it more like Star Trek. 
he would bring in Genesis 2, and they said, well, can't you make it more like Star Trek? Because that's what they really wanted, and Paramount wouldn't give it to them. So the underground shuttle, in a sense, became a surrogate enterprise. The, the, the uh, exploration team became a surrogate landing party. Uh, the uniforms became kind of like Star Trek and Planet Earth uh, when they did it that way, and, and so on. And so uh, they would put in Star Trek sound effects and things of this nature. And if you think about Genesis 2 and Planet Earth, it's, it's a futuristic world that's been uh, fragmented. Societies have been fragmented by war, and, and they're disconnected from each other. So it's like going to a strange new world in each one of these. And the third time ABC tried to do this pilot, they named it Strange New World. Yeah. And, th and there's a great letter in there from the NBC executive where he writes Roddenberry and he says, hey, what do you think of our great new title for this, Strange <laughs> New World? They, they took that right out of the opening narration of Star Trek to explore Strange New Worlds. Yeah. That's how much the networks were trying to make it Star trek -y and bring in the Star Trek fans. So when you see these and you think Gene's running out of ideas, he wasn't. He was trying to give the networks what they wanted until it got to the point where he just had to walk away from each one of these. These are the voyages Gene Roddenberry and Star Trek in the 1970s, Volume 1, 1970 to 1975, was completed with cooperation of the Gene Roddenberry estate and includes excerpts from many of the Great Birds production memos and private papers, plus a slew of photographs. These are the voyages, Gene Roddenberry and Star Trek in the 1970s, Volume 1, available through jacobsbrownmediagroup.com, amazon.com, wherever books are sold online. You just uh, shared the story about how you learned that Roddenberry fought for Leonard behind the scenes of the making of Quester tapes, Leonard was not aware of that. Leonard died thinking Gene had betrayed him, but that was a revelation you were able to... I mean, that was a revelation you wished you would have been able to bring to Leonard before he died. Yeah, because I was actually working with Leonard and with his son, but Leonard was involved with the project, too, um, for the love of Spock. And Leonard had recommended to his son, Adam, that uh, he had me be a, an advisor on the, uh, the, the movie, because Leonard had read my books, of course, and interviewed for them, but was so impressed by the books that uh, uh, and the research and everything. So he said, "You got to go, you know, talk to Mark Cushman. He knows more than we know about any of this stuff <laughs> because he's been through all the yeah. papers." So I, you know, I met with Adam and, and had some conversations with him to help in that respect. Then it was six months later after Leonard passed away that I came across this memo. And that, that's the shame of it, because I would have called him up. I know it would have meant so much to him, because as we were discussing before, Leonard had really strong ethics about being truthful with people and being uh, straight with your friends and having their backs and everything else. And he felt that Gene had betrayed him. So I think if I could have let him know that, you know, that would have been just one more thing he could have had peace with before passing on. Uh, but I found it too late. I didn't find it too late for his son, and I didn't find it, and, and his daughter, and I didn't find it too late for myself and the fans. We know now that Gene Roddenberry, who, you know, had his dark side, certainly, was there for Leonard Nimoy, fought for him, and even quit the project. Not entirely, but quit it as the producer because of what the studio was doing. You kind of touched on this. How did Leonard's children react when you discovered that? I don't remember. Uh, I, I, I didn't talk to Julie 
uh, I, I remember I told Adam because we were in communication at that time. Uh, I, I remember he found it very interesting and was happy to hear it, uh, but I can't remember exactly what he said because uh, it was over the phone. Yeah. So I, I didn't see his facial expression or anything else, but I know that that it meant a lot to him to know that. Um, but nowhere near what it would have meant to uh, Leonard Nimoy because see, Adam didn't have a relationship with Gene Roddenberry. Yeah. You know, so it's it's kind of it's nice to know, but I, that would have meant so much more to to Leonard to know that. And, it, and what's, what's really sad, Ed, is that Gene couldn't tell Leonard. I mean, he could say, yes, I think it's terrible and, and I'm not happy about it, but he couldn't say anything beyond that. He couldn't say, come look at the letters I've written. Come look at, at what's going on. Because he was under contract, right. and there's disclosure clauses in these contracts. Yeah, yeah. And Universal had said, we'll deal with this. It's not your place. So his hands were tied. I mean, Gene was professional. He's not going to break his word on a contract. And you can't always have the candid conversations you want to have with your actors and other people that are working under you. One other full circle moment, a uh, revelation uh, that came about as a result of your research into Quester tapes. And this is covered in These Are the Voyages, Gene Roddenberry and Star Trek in the 70s, Volume 1, Mark, has to do with... Mike Farrell. Mike Farrell was Jerry Robinson in Quester. And after Quester had aired, either NBC or Universal decided to give Quester a second chance, but they gutted the format, and Mike mm -hmm. Farrell was a casualty of that. They took him out, and Dorothy was shocked. You know, I had I talked to her about this as well. Dorothy Fontana. Uh, and Mike Farrell didn't understand why it was happening. It was the network. Mm -hmm. uh, it was a guy at the network said, let's make it more like the fugitive. Let's let Quester be all on his own, traveling around the world and being hunted by these people, but trying to accomplish a mission and so forth, instead of it having be this buddy thing. But you needed the Mike Farrell character. I mean, the thing that made Spock work was Kirk. Mm -hmm. And the McCoy. relationship between the two. And McCoy. And, and McCoy. Uh, to take a Spock-like character and not have him do, have a colleague uh, to, that's a human mm -hmm. to, to banter with and to have that colleague be able to explain to him why humans are doing what they're doing, which, of course, was always Gene's uh, goal with all his shows, mm -hmm. is to look at the human element, for us to be able to see ourselves through the eyes of an alien. Well, if Quester doesn't have anybody to talk to about his observations... How are we going to learn anything about ourselves when we watch the show? So Gene was just so upset when they took Mike Farrell out. That's when he quit the show. He'd already quit the pilot as the producer. Now, Universal gave him a, an executive producer's credit anyway, mm -hmm. but he wasn't supposed to get it. They were just exploiting his name. He had already stepped away. So then when they said, we're going to do the series, and he had seen what a good job Robert Foxworth had done, he said, I'll come back in, I'll produce the series. He gave it all these script assignments, uh, and so forth. But then they made the decision to take Mike Farrell out of the show. And that's when he had to quit again. He said, if you do this, I'm going to quit, because we don't have a show. Everything that makes this work is not going to work now without that character. Uh, so they said, no, we're doing it. And so he quit one more time. They assigned a new producer. They rewrote all the scripts. And guess what? It never got made anyway, because once they changed everything, they look at it and say, gee, this isn't any good. Why did we buy it in the first place? <laughs> I've gone through that. I've, I've written scripts for studios, and they, and they would love it, and they would option the script, and then they would start tinkering with it. 
And I had a meeting with a production executive once after he had taken out all the stuff that made it work. And he looks at it and he says, you know, I'm trying to figure out why we bought this in the first place. And I said to him, why don't you go back and read the script you bought and maybe you'll be reminded. And of course, that was the last time I worked for them. But, <laughs> <laughs> but it's, just, it's, it's, anta- it's just so frustrating. And that's something else I'm able to bring into these books because of my background and my experience is I know how the industry works. Absolutely. I know what Gene Roddenberry was running up against time and time again, not just from his memos, yeah. not just from what he told me when I interviewed him years ago and what Dorothy told me. And so, far. And by the way, D.C. Fontana, Dorothy writes, wrote the foreword for this book uh, because she was the associate producer of the animated series and so forth. So I've had such intimate conversations with all of them as well as having their memos to show what they were thinking at the moment. But I have my own background, which allows me to understand the system and what they were fighting against. That book being These Are the Voyages, Gene Roddenberry and Star Trek in the 1970s, Volume 1, 1970-1975, available through our friends at jacobsbrownmediagroup.com, amazon.com, wherever books are sold online. Mark Cushman's website, markcushman.com. His Twitter account is These are voyages correct these are the voyages books these are the voyages books you can follow mark on twitter to find out when volume two of the roddenberry biography is coming out and news on mark's other projects before we leave quester tapes and this this goes back to the full circle okay in the meantime mike farrell has been cut out of the project and to allude to a point you made earlier and this is typical of what goes on in the industry Mike Farrell is cut out of the project, and the studio doesn't tell him why. They just said, Mike, we're going to go in another direction. Right. And Mike lives with this, and you tell me if I'm wrong. In the 40 years after Quester Tapes was aired, and despite all the success Mike had with MASH, Mike is living with the fact that I got cut out of Quester Tapes on some level in the back of his psyche, and you were able to help heal him of that as a result of Yeah, we have a wonderful quote in the book there of him reacting to this information when he found out who did it, why they did it, that it wasn't Gene Roddenberry, it was an NBC exec, and so forth. And that was from uh, maybe less than a year ago when we brought this information forward to Mike. I say we because um, Frank Garcia uh, was involved in interviewing a lot of the people in this book. Frank Garcia is a wonderful writer in his own right. Uh, wrote for Starlog mm-hmm. for many, many years, mm-hmm. has written a couple books of his own uh, on science fiction TV and, and so forth. And it was Frank who uh, did the initial interview with Mike Farrell. So we were able to get this information back to Mike that I gave to Frank, and Frank gave it to Mike, and Mike wrote a letter to both of us uh, telling us uh, his reaction, which you can see right there in the book. And, you know, this happened. This has happened to me many times, mm-hmm. Ed. Mm-hmm. I know we were short on time, so I'll be rude. No, no, no. This is the Mark Cushman Show. Take as long as you need. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was the Ed Robertson <laughs> We'll pick up that conversation with Mark Cushman when we come back after this quick time out here on TV Confidential. Got a product or service that you want our listeners to know about? Become an advertiser or underwriter of TV Confidential and let our brand help promote your brand. For more information, go to televisionconfidential.com forward slash advertise or visit the tv confidential page at advertisecast.com ed robertson along with tony figaro and donna allen from story salon southern california's longest running regularly performing live storytelling ensemble which i understand is a new location 
Yeah, we're very excited about it. We're moving actually to the Party Art Studio on Laurel Canyon Boulevard, 5302 Laurel Canyon. It's a new art gallery and it's, it's beautiful. Gonna, it's beautiful. Don and I have been involved with Story Salon for the last nine plus years. We're going to be in an art gallery now. We're going to have a $5 cover, some nice refreshments, and a wonderful eclectic evening of storytelling. Which is a great environment because, it, 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 as you say, the word is eclectic, and for $5, it's a great evening of entertainment. You can't ask for much more. No, not at all. And uh, these stories, some of them are funny, some of them are tragic, some of them are a little off the wall, but we just have a wonderful time uh, keeping the art of storytelling alive. And you can find out more about it by going to storysalon.com. Accredited by Guinness World Records, welcome to Archival Television Audio Incorporated. A peerless TV soundtrack archive preserving the audio from television's first three decades, the 1950s, 60s, and 70s, the golden and silver age of television. For more information, go to atvaudio.com. We're Biffle and Schuster. How do you do? We turned up here to spread some cheer and entertain you. That's right. We're Biffle and Schuster. I'm Benny Biffle, and this is Sammy Schuster. And we're here to tell you about this amazing DVD, not BVD, DVD that just came out from a company called Kino Lorber. And you know what Kino Lorber means, don't you, Sammy? I sure do. It means sales. <laughs> Lots of sales. This collection is called The Misadventures of... Biffle this? and Schuster. That's right. Mm-hmm. It's terrific. Good. Yeah, you know what uh, Joe Dante says about them? What did he say? He says, forehead slapping funny. What impresses is the dogged authenticity to the era, which makes it all the more hilarious. Absolutely. Accent on the high. We're Biffle and Schuster, as you can see. No one else can make that statement louder than we. They say we're soporific and it's probably we. We're Biffle and Schuster, oh, we're Biffle and Schuster. No, no, we're Biffle and Schuster. B-I-F-F-L-Biffle, Biffle, S-H-W-O-S to Schuster. Biffle and Schuster, need we say more? Available wherever DVDs are sold through our friends at Kino Lorber. All right, you loafers, get back to work. What am I paying you for? Why is he yelling at his shoes? You can listen to this show all over again as a podcast on TuneIn, iTunes, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and other podcast platforms. Best of all, it's free. To find out how to subscribe to the TV Confidential podcast, go to the homepage at televisionconfidential.com and click subscribe now. Be part of our conversation. If you like what you hear, have thoughts on this week's program, or have an idea for a future edition of TV Confidential, we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at talk at tvconfidential.net, talk at tvconfidential.net. You can also message us at facebook.com forward slash tvconfidential, x.com forward slash tvconfidential, or at tvconfidential on Instagram. And if you're listening to us on the TV Confidential podcast, please be sure to hit the subscribe button. This portion of TV Confidential is brought to us by our friends at Front Porch Realty, the community of realtors in the Northern Bay area of California that is committed to finding the solution that is best for their clients. Whether you're a first-time home buyer or looking to sell or lease your property in Northern California, call Karen Strain at 415-886-7411 or visit frontporchrealtygroup.com for more information on how they can help you.